0: Welcome to episode 10 of the Movie Marathoners Podcast. I'm your host, Mati, and today I'm doing a solo run, so it's going to be just me. The Movie Marathoners Podcast has hit a bit of a snag, and my former co-host no longer wants to do the podcast. So I'm currently in the process of finding a new co-host, or at least a recurring cycle of guests. So hopefully in the coming weeks, I'll be able to have some fun guests on until I can come up with a more solid plan for the future of the podcast— but basically, I really want to make sure that I keep doing this because it's been a lot of fun and I really enjoy the process. So if you listeners have any idea for guests, or even if you yourself want to be a guest, please don't hesitate to reach out to me at marathonerspod at gmail.com or on Twitter at moviemarapod. And that's movie, M-A-R-A, pod. And don't worry if you don't have any experience with podcasting or any, you know, extensive movie knowledge or whatever. Anyone is welcome, and I'd love to have you. Okay, so for now, I want to keep making content, and I've seen quite a few things that I do want to talk about. So hopefully this episode can kind of, you know, help you get through a run or a commute to work or whatever, and I'll do my very best to keep it interesting, even though it's just me. So this week, we, or I mean, I guess I, uh, I will be running through a handful of movies and TV shows that I've been watching including Godzilla, King of the Monsters, X-Men Dark Phoenix, and Amazon's Good Omens. So the format of the show is going to be a bit different. um, Since I'm covering a range of different movies and shows, I'll put timestamps in the show notes, so if you want to listen to a specific topic, you can just, you know, skip to that part of the podcast. Okay, so let's get started with Godzilla, King of the Monsters. What we are witnessing here is the return of Titans. How many of these things are there? 17 and counting. Ah! That's messed up. Skidora, we stop them all. Is there another creature that might stand a chance against him? My God, Zilla! So first, let's read a synopsis. The cryptozoological agency Monarch faces off against a battery of god-sized monsters including the mighty Godzilla, who collides with Mothra, Rodan, and his ultimate nemesis, the three-headed King Ghidorah. Godzilla King of Monsters stars Kyle Chandler, Vera Farmiga, and Millie Bobby Brown. It is written by Zach Shields and Michael Doherty, Do- Doherty? I don't know, who also directed. So let's uh, just start by saying that the title of this film is awful. Um, I have no idea why they called it King of the Monsters instead of King of Monsters, which, in my opinion, sounds so much better. It rolls off the tongue easier, but okay, whatever. King of the Monsters. Um, I guess I should start by saying that I'm not, like, a huge Godzilla fan. I haven't seen any of the the really old ones, like the, the the black and white ones from the 50s or any of those other ones. But I do have some, you know, general Godzilla awareness from a Game Boy Advance game that I played when I was little. And that was called Godzilla Destroy All Monsters. Um, and in that, you play as Godzilla or any of the other monsters and, you know, you kind of fight each other. So I do know who Rodan is. I know who Mothra is. And I do know who King Ghidorah is, who was kind of like my guy. He was the guy that I always played as. Bit of a bummer that he's a villain in this, but, you know, I guess that's fine. Um, so, you know, I was I was pretty excited to see all these guys on screen for the first time. And I also really enjoyed the the Gareth, I want to say, Edwards. I always get Edwards and Evans mixed up, but um, the Gareth Edwards 2014 film uh, just called Godzilla. And granted, I haven't seen that film for several years. Normally I try and make a point of seeing the movie, you know, the prequel before, like right before I see the sequel, but I didn't have time to do that. Um, So it's been a while. But I do remember that I I didn't really have a huge problem with the human characters and that some people did. And the other kind of main complaint that there was that it was a bit of a bummer that Godzilla wasn't in the movie that much. But when he was, it was really thrilling. It was visually gorgeous. And the film kind of had this huge sense of, of gravitas. You know, in a way, it felt regal. Uh, it, it felt serious. And it, I mean, it's a trite saying, but, but the film felt grounded. Like Godzilla was this very real and tangible force of nature. And you kind of had to treat him with respect and fear. So I thought Godzilla 2014, good, really good. Um, Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Yeah, I, I really didn't like this film that, at all. Um, I thought it was almost, you know, completely unredeemable. But I'll start with the positives, of which this movie has exactly three. One, the creature designs, super cool. I really like how King Ghidorah looks, and I think that all the coolest parts of Godzilla's do- design from the original 2014 film are brought back. So props to the creature design. Okay, two. There are some gorgeous, uh, I guess what you would call splash page wide shots when the camera kind of zooms out and shows the scale of the monsters when they're fighting. Those are beautiful. Uh, you see a couple of them in the trailer, but when you see them on the big screen, that's super nice and and gorgeous. And okay, three. The credits are actually really cool. Um, both the initial credits and then there's like a fun little gag in when the credits are scrolling through, uh, you know, through the black screen. That was cool. So yeah, those those are my positives. The rest of the film is, in my opinion, borderline unwatchable. I mean, my expectations, they were pretty low after the initial reviews were not very kind to the film, but it was actually a lot worse than I thought it was going to be. And I think the reason for that is there's there's two main reasons. The first is the human characters. You know, it's, it's a common criticism f- uh, for Godzilla movies that the human characters aren't very fleshed out. And for the most part you know that that doesn't necessarily bother me but in this film the sheer number of human characters was baffling absolutely baffling there's a line in the trailer where they say something like oh how many titans are there and you know the guy responds 17 and counting okay first of all that's a lie you see like six maybe and and of the main ones there's like four But really, I think that line should actually be, oh, how many human characters are there? 17 and counting, because there are so many characters here and you don't care about any of them, not a single one. And you spend like an hour and 35 minutes of the movie with these people. So like while the the original, and when I say original from here on out, just kind of assume, I mean, 2014, it's the only other one I've really seen. While the original Godzillas kind of had, you know, a handful of characters and they weren't really fleshed out. This one has literally quadrupled the characters, and they are even less characterized. And what's crazy is that most of the actors playing these characters are really good actors. You've got Sally Hawkins, who was in The Shape of Water, the Best Picture winner from 2017. You've got Kyle Chandler from Friday Night Lights, Thomas Middleditch from Silicon Valley, Vera Farmiga from The Departed. I don't know. This movie completely wastes all their talent. They're, they're given nothing really to do... Uh, except, say, some really poorly written dialogue that's really only meant to spew garbage exposition. But for some reason, the film thinks that we really care about these people, even though we really, really don't. So we have to follow them through a very confusing and very boring plot of, oh, now we have to do this, and and then Godzilla's going to do this, and then we do this. So there's like a, a middle portion of the movie where I was sitting there like, are, are we seriously still following this thread? Is this seriously a thing that we're still doing? Why are we not at the final fight? And all of the characters in this just make the worst decisions. Like some of the dumbest things I've ever seen, especially the kind of the main decision by one of the characters, which I won't ruin, um, but it, it kind of sets up the, well, I guess what you'd call the plot of this movie. That, that is just a terrible decision and it makes no sense, even, even when they try and frame it as something logical. And everyone seems to be an idiot in this film, except Kyle Chandler, who is, you know, he's essentially an encyclopedia of the perfect, correct decisions at any given moment. And it's it's really unclear, like, what exactly his expertise is, because he's like, like, he starts out the film just, you know, taking pictures of wolves and kind of listening to their howls. I guess he's some sort of sound engineer or something. But he seems to know basically everything about anything that the plot asks for, including telling like entire rooms full of government and military officials what the exact right military tactic is. And and he's perfect or he's, he's always right about all of it. And then on top of that, Chandler is basically, you know, he's he's coach tailoring the whole movie and with crap writing that just makes him kind of like a total asshole instead of the sort of stern and and. uh harsh father figure that he he might supposed to be and that he definitely is in Friday Night Lights. And speaking of actors acting, Millie Bobby Brown is just Millie Bobby Browning all over the place in the film. You see it in the trailer, she's crying, she's making that face. There is zero reason for her to be in this, but when she is, she's basically just 11 minus powers plus hair. But okay. I'm sure you're thinking, no one goes to see Godzilla movies for the humans. We just have to put up with all the human stuff to get to the monster fights. That's what we really want, the monster fights, pow pow, right? Um, okay, sure, but, but why? why? Why do we have to put up with it? For some reason, there seems to be this tacit rule in films like this that it's okay to be lazy with characters because audiences are only here for the monsters punching each other they're not mutually exclusive. You know, you you can have both. I mean, it's definitely harder to have both, but it's certainly possible. It's just that this film in particular doesn't really seem to care about taking that route and putting that extra effort in. But whatever. Let's say we're fine with having to sift through shit to get to the nuggets of gold. That leads me to my second issue with this film, which is that the gold that you're getting at the end isn't even that good. The monster fights, like, like the the main event and the draw of this movie is overwhelmingly average. There are moments in both the 2014 Godzilla and, like, whatever, two years ago when Kong Skull Island came out that's in the same universe. There's moments in those two movies that are significantly cooler and a lot more interesting than anything that happens in this one. And those films, they actually even look better. And that's because the way that the fights are shot in Godzilla, King of the Monsters are, you know, they're shot very close and tight. And it a lot of the time, it just looks like shapes kind of like smashing together. And it, it's really hard to get a sense of what's actually going on in most of the shots. And that's even compounded by the ridiculous decision. Maybe it's like a financial decision or it makes, you know, animating and, and doing the CGI easier. But all the fight scenes have this kind of haze over them from snow or dust or rain or both, or three, all three, whatever that, that it makes it really hard to see what's going on and so like in in Kong or in the 2014 Godzilla, you get these really nice crisp shots of both of those monsters. But in here, even when you get those kind of widescreen shots, everything is really hazy, and it, it does ultimately feel pretty unsatisfying. But I will give the film one more tiny personal positive which it is it is like a slight slight spoiler that kind of has to do with with the end fight so skip ahead i guess like a minute if you don't want to know absolutely anything about this movie but here we go so the final fight in this film takes place in Boston which happens to be the city that i live in and they do a decent job of utilizing the city and kind of giving you a feel for the different landmarks in Boston so Godzilla for example is walking through the Charles River and when they smash through buildings those are buildings that i was able to see when i left the theater and just looked up and i've i've really never experienced that before and it was it was pretty cool i mean i grew up in arizona no films ever take place in arizona and i don't really have a personal affinity for new york which is where most films take place especially the the kind of the world ending city destruction films so it it was cool to get to see the the landmarks you know get destroyed but on that note, there was literally no reason for the final fight to take place in Boston. And I, I have to think that someone very high up in the production of this film either loves Boston and specifically Fenway Park. There, there's like a whole thing about Fenway here um, that makes it seem like somebody just really loves the Red Sox or something. Or, you know, somebody could really, really hate Boston and they just want to see it just absolutely get leveled because that does happen too. So, yeah, this film is really just not that good. Not only did I have to put up with a ton of terrible characters doing dumb and boring tasks, I also just really didn't think that the fight scenes were all that spectacular. You know, the the film, it feels lazy, it feels poorly put together, nothing really feels cohesive, and it doesn't really feel like the people behind the film really knew what they wanted to make from this one. So while I keep referring to the first Godzilla, but in that film... Regardless of how you feel about the kind of final product, it feels like it was purposefully made and it was there was specific directorial attention to detail. And this one just feels like, you know, they're they're operating on the same level as something like the Meg from last year. Yeah, yeah. The, the giant shark movie and this are on the same level. You know, the humor is the same. The amount of acting that's required is the same. It's it's just not good. So I'm giving Godzilla King of Monsters a 3 out of 10. And before we continue to our next little tidbit, I do want to make this episode feel a little unique and kind of fit for the Movie Marathoners podcast. So let's just talk briefly about how fast Godzilla can run. So I did the bare minimum amount of what counts as research, and I found out based from Google that dinosaurs like the Brontosaurus and uh, the T-Rex have been estimated to run roughly 12 miles per hour. It's actually quite a bit slower than what people initially thought T-Rexes could run. You know, a lot of T-Rexes in movies, apparently people thought that they could run like 35 miles per hour, but because of, you know, whatever the, the, the way that their body is shaped or whatever, they really can't run much faster. And I think that these two guys, they're kind of the closest that we can get to something that has like the same general shape and body structure as Godzilla. Although granted, Brontosaurus is, they're on four. But they're they're kind of chonky, like Godzilla. so these these dinosaurs they can they can run five miles um, 12 miles per hour, which is about five minutes per mile. Um, but they're also only around 12 to 15 meters tall. And so Godzilla on the other hand is actually 120 meters tall. It's huge. it's ten times the size. So I'm gonna make a very, very crude assumption, not one that really works, but it's going to be a crude assumption that speed scales with size. And obviously it doesn't, right? Because, you know, air resistance and inertia and all sorts of other physics-y terms that I don't want to incorporate. But let's ignore all that and reason that, okay, if Godzilla is 10 times as large as a brontosaurus, then his steps will be 10 times longer, so he can run 10 times faster. So that puts him at about 30 seconds per mile, or 120 miles per hour. That's all I really have to say about that. I don't I don't I don't know where I was going with that, but that's my best estimate. So now let's move on to X-Men Dark Phoenix, the final film in 20th century Fox's X-Men franchise. Ladies and gentlemen of NASA, this is Charles Xavier. Help is on the way. We're doing space missions now. Cool. We get the astronauts, we bring them home. Go! Heat signature's rising fast. We gotta get out of here. Where's Jean? Where is she? Jean! She should be dead. Did you hear what the kids are calling you? Phoenix. Hello, Jean. Who are you? The better question is, who are you? Something's happening to me. When I lose control, bad things happen. But it feels good. So first I will read a brief summary. And it goes, Jean Grey begins to develop incredible powers that corrupt and turn her into a dark phoenix. Now the X-Men will have to decide if the life of a team member is worth more than all the people living in the world. X-Men Dark Phoenix stars Sophie Turner, James McAvoy, and Michael Fassbender, and it is written and directed by longtime X-Men producer Simon Kinberg. So much like Godzilla King of the Monsters, X-Men Dark Phoenix is really not doing that well critically. It's currently sitting at 22% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is the lowest of the franchise. And this franchise has had a lot of stinkers over its 19-year span. But, I mean, it's also had a lot of fantastic films, including entries like X-Men First Class, which I just unequivocally love. I love that movie. Dark Phoenix has had a a rough production run. It was supposed to be released in November of 2018, before it was pushed back to February of 2019, and then finally to its current release date in June. And this was all happening during Disney's acquisition of 20th Century Fox, which has left people questioning, you know, the fate of the X-Men franchise in general. So it was very conceivable that this was going to be the final send-off to this 20th century Fox iteration of the X-Men as we know it. And on top of this, the final third act of the film was then reshot in late 2018. So troubled production usually raises some flags. Not always, but, you know, a lot of the time it does. But I I decided that I was going to be optimistic about, about this film. And that's because being optimistic is, I don't know, it's always better than being pessimistic. And it works out more often than not. Um, so might as well do it. But, you know, take take my optimism with a grain of salt, because I'm also the idiot that kept hoping that Josh Trank's Fantastic Four was going to be good all the way up until opening night. So, you know, what do I know? I don't know. But yeah, I mean, I, I had hope that maybe they'd, they'd pull it all together. And I explicitly avoided any of the trailers or anything like that, because I, I knew I'd eventually see this. And I... I'd, Try to do that for movies that I I know I'm going to see. So, when the reviews came out last week, that's when I kind of started to drastically lower my expectations for this film. And honestly, I think that saved the film for me. I ended up really, really enjoying Dark Phoenix. I was very surprised. When I left the theater, I was baffled at how harsh people's criticisms were. I mean, it's definitely not a fantastic movie, and it has a lot of problems that I'll try to get into and mention later. But it really isn't as bad as the internet is making it out to be. And I mean, I, I guess that's a lesson that, you know, I seem to be cursed with learning time and time again, is that the internet is hyperbolic and has no idea what it's talking about. So positives first, the actors in the X-Men franchise are consistently top-notch, like almost surprisingly, sometimes they get so much talent in their movies. And I thought that, you know, as usual, everyone here was great, and they seem to be really comfortable with their characters. I thought it was really fun to just kind of get to watch these excellent actors play these characters um, that they've been playing for a while now. And I do have to mention, though, that if you aren't totally caught up to the speed of who these characters are, this film, like if it's your first entry, doesn't really do much to tell you anything about the characters. Uh, I mean, this this phenomenon, it's not new in blockbuster movies. But it is using other films to do the heavy lifting of the character development, and it's worth mentioning. So Storm, for example, has this excellently subtle line referencing her past mistakes in X-Men Apocalypse, and you can kind of get an understanding for why she's doing what she's doing in this film. But the film doesn't really lay it out for you if you haven't seen X-Men Apocalypse And what's interesting about this film in particular is that it's also taking advantage of the audience's knowledge of future iterations of these characters from the original trilogy. So while we've only spent like a single film being X-Men Apocalypse with Ty Sheridan's Cyclops and also Cody Smith McPhee's Nightcrawler, we also know who they're going to be based on the actors that played them in the original X-Men films. And Dark Phoenix doesn't really try to reintroduce any of that previous character development, even though it's from a future time point. It's a little weird. And that's likely not going to work for a lot of people, but it definitely did for me as somebody who's seen all these movies. So let's talk about the superhero stuff. I've always really loved the X-Men, mainly because I think that they have really unique powers. And those powers can be used to make really interesting action set pieces. I feel like I just said really a lot. My bad. But most of the films just really haven't taken advantage of those power sets. And for the earlier films, that kind of makes sense because, you know, a lot of that was likely due to a lack of technology that could be used to actually make it seem realistic. But even in the later films like Days of Future Past and Apocalypse, they tend to have very stilted and lethargic action sequences And I think that's because Brian Singer kind of sucks at action scenes. Uh, That's at least my theory. Because First Class, who was directed by Matthew Vaughn, has some very good action, and and they really use those powers creatively. In Dark Phoenix, Simon Kinberg actually does come up with some really clever ways for the X-Men to use their powers. And the action, it feels kinetic, it feels decently well thought out, you know, with a couple of exceptions— But when the action was going, I was having a lot of fun, and it always looked pretty good. Uh, The special effects are, for the most part, again, very good. And I think one way that you see that is that Beast finally looks very believable. And I really liked kind of the the laser effects from Cyclops and Jean's Phoenix powers. I think all of that looked very pleasant. But okay, we, we can talk about what this film doesn't do well, which is, I mean, admittedly, it's a lot. First off, the story, it's kind of all over the place. You know, it it doesn't flow very well. A lot of the decisions that the characters make to kind of get certain things in the plot to happen, those seem either completely random or just grossly out of character. And Beast's character in particular kind of just gets completely bastardized at one point in order to propel the plot. He does something that Beast would, would never do, but whatever. You know, the, the villain is MCU-quality paper-thin, and the dialogue can also be pretty cringy at times. The pace feels pretty rushed, kind of like they're just, you know, trying to get to the finish line as quickly as possible. And it it does seem pretty clear that at some point during production, they were just sort of like, oh, screw it. And then also, um, there's a lot of what I would call mental battles between characters, so kind of like in Star Wars the Force Awakens when Daisy and Kylo Ren are kind of using the Force to to push each other and they're just kind of looking at each other and you've got all that nice sound design that makes you know what's happening but in in this there's so many of those mental battles and sometimes it just looks pretty ridiculous cuz like you're just watching these ridiculously talented actors kind of grunt and and groan and grimace at each other and it reminds me a lot of like Leonardo DiCaprio in The Revenant where they're just sort of just like uh, uh, it's 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 a little silly. And it's had to have looked even more ridiculous on set when they had to do it, you know, without any of the special effects, without any of the sound mixing or the musical score or anything. But on that note, um, I actually thought that the musical score is, is pretty good. I, I really liked it throughout the film and it kind of gave you an X-Men regal feel. But ultimately, I think the biggest flaw in this film is that it it isn't really anything more than just another superhero movie. And we get that a lot. It was the same problem with X-Men Apocalypse. And the X-Men films are at their best when they're infused with that kind of philosophical debate that is more or less personified by Charles Xavier and Magneto. And X-Men films, and and even more so in the X-Men comics, have touched upon some very heavy things, like civil rights movement, the Holocaust segregation, and, you know, a lot of other topics that if you're just looking at it at a surface level, you're not going to see it. You need to you need to dig a little deeper into the subtext of the film. But in in Dark Phoenix, there really isn't any of that. There's nothing deeper than what you see on the surface, which is just a really pat story about family and trying to, you know, open yourself up to family that's not your actual family, you know? And that's a bit of a shame for what's feasibly going to be the final film in a franchise that basically started the modern day superhero genre. And I think that might be why Dark Phoenix is kind of getting torn to shreds. It's just not the X-Men franchise at its best. And it also doesn't really feel like a fitting conclusion, either thematically or overall quality wise. But I mean, overall, I, I did enjoy this quite a bit. I I recognize that it has a lot of flaws, and I know that I'm specifically primed to like superhero movies. So what was enough for me might not necessarily be enough for everyone. But overall, I'm going to give X-Men Dark Phoenix a 6.5 out of 10. And I'll just conclude by saying that to me, the biggest disappointment of this film is realizing that we are likely never going to see these actors playing these characters again. I love James McAvoy's Xavier. I love Michael Fassbender's Magneto. I even love, like, Ty Sheridan's Cyclops. And I've always loved that the X-Men franchise under Fox takes itself seriously. You know, it's not funny like the MCU, which might be why some people are calling this movie boring. You know, it's it's a lot easier to enjoy something and be forgiving of a fairly average movie when it makes you feel good throughout with some lighthearted jokes. and it's a lot easier to be critical of a film when it kind of asks you to take itself as seriously as it's taking itself. I mean, there's always been some humor in the X-Men franchise, but these films are first and foremost dramas about characters that feel real. And I'm really going to miss that in this franchise. And it's kind of a shame that Dark Phoenix, while I still enjoyed it, is a pretty unceremonious send off. So yeah. Oh, and... I'll also say that, you know, Quicksilver is obviously the fastest X-Men, so we don't really have to talk about that. But to find out just how fast he is, there's a nice article from Rhett Elaine on Wired that was released when X-Men Apocalypse came out, and he calculates it through various different measures that Quicksilver can run roughly 174 miles per second. So it's pretty fast, uh, in a distant second, behind Quicksilver as, like, second fastest X-Men. I'd put my money on Beast because he's, like, part cat or whatever. But anyways, so now let's just move on to our final topic of the day, which is a TV show, Amazon's Good Omens. Aziraphale, it's me. We need to talk. Yes, I rather think we do. I assume this is about... Armageddon. Yes. How long have we been friends? Six thousand years. Is that you under there, Crowley? Crowley. What the hell are you playing at? We're friends. We're not friends. We are an angel and a demon. We're on opposite sides. We're on our side. It's up to me. Yes. We have nothing whatsoever in common. I don't even like you. You do. Armageddon is coming. And then it's all over. No more fascinating little restaurants where they know you. No more old bookshops. There must be some way of stopping it. We have to work together. Best it's the end of the world we're talking about. You make it won't be the war to end all war. It be war, end all war. It'll be the war to end everything. We're doomed. Well then, welcome to the end times. As always, I'll read a synopsis, a tale of the bungling of Armageddon features an angel, a demon, an 11-year-old antichrist, and a doom-saying witch, and also a ton of other things, but we'll get to that. Good Omen stars David Tennant and Michael Sheen, and it is written by Neil Gaiman and directed by Douglas MacKinnon. So if you couldn't tell from that synopsis, this show is very bizarre. I I think the best way I can describe it is that it's the quirkiness of Netflix's A Series of Unfortunate Events crossed with the subject matter of Supernatural. So it definitely caters to a particular sensibility that isn't necessarily going to be for anyone right off the bat. It's based on a novel written by Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman, and it's actually a novel that I haven't read, so I can't comment on how it compares to the novel, but I will say that, you know, this show is an absolute delight. It is wonderfully off-kilter and fun. It's hilarious in a way where there were many times where that where I would just laugh just because whatever was happening was just so weird and ridiculous. And I watched this with my friend and there were several times where we would just look at each other and be like, "Did that really just happen? Did did the did the TV show really just go there?" And the answer is yes. Yes, it goes to a lot of very crazy places. But All This Insanity is led by its two leads, Martin Sheen and David Tennant, and they are excellent. They have fantastic chemistry. Uh, Martin Sheen plays an angel and David Tennant plays a demon that kind of have to work together and they, over the course of human history, develop a friendship. And my favorite parts of the show are when Sheen and Tennant are just kind of together talking, firing off dialogue at one another The dialogue is really witty, it's fast, which kind of makes the show move along at a very brisk pace. And banter-wise, I think that works really well because Neil Gaiman has very successfully adapted his own source material, especially as far as Sheen and Tennant's characters are concerned. Where it gets a little more muddled is the plot, which, because of the way the show works, is equally as fast. But as somebody who hasn't read the book, it was pretty easy to get lost in sort of the hyperactive energy of everything that's going on. And these scenes, they kind of fire one after another, and it's really easy to lose a very important piece of exposition, especially earlier in the film. I mean show. The narration by Frances McDormand, who voices God, she she can help clear things up a little bit, but I couldn't help but think that the entire show would make a lot more sense if I read the book. But that isn't to say that the show is, like, incomprehensible or anything. You do pretty easily get the broad strokes of what's going on, but the inner workings of what's actually happening, those can be really confusing, especially in those first two episodes when you're just kind of trying to understand what exactly you're seeing. But I also want to comment on the look of the show, because especially in 4K, the show is absolutely beautiful. It's so crisp. It's almost so crisp that it can look hyper-realistic in places and that's just because of how well shot everything is and for a tv show the special effects are usually pretty good throughout but you know some of them especially with fire which is kind of notoriously difficult to animate that can look really cheap but overall this show is just a delight to look at i keep saying delight for this show but it is it's a delight and like godzilla this show does have a lot of characters But unlike Godzilla, and fortunately for Good Omens, you know, they have five one-hour-long episodes to deal with. So there's a lot more time to flesh them out. But even with those five hours, some of the characters can feel a bit superfluous. There's one character in particular who's played by Michael McKean, and nothing to the actor or anything, but that character really outstays his welcome. He's pretty unbearable, and I was very surprised at how much he was in the show. And like other TV shows, there are several subplots that just aren't nearly as interesting as what's going on in the main plot between Sheen and Tennant. My only other complaint is that the ending of the show does feel a bit rushed. And as seems to be a case with a lot of these kind of high concept shows, the journey is far better than the ultimate destination that we get to. So the middle episodes are definitely the best. And in the final episodes, when they're kind of quickly trying to wrap up the plot... Things can get a little sloppy, but because the world that they've created is so absurd and kind of surreal, the, I guess, quote unquote, logical gaps in storytelling are a lot more forgivable in this good show. So, yeah, I'll, I'll just keep this brief. Good Omens is, <laughs> I mean, it's good. It's, it's very easy to watch. It's, it's a quick watch, and I definitely recommend it for anyone who is interested and has Amazon Prime. So yeah, that wraps up this episode. This has been a pretty unconventional episode of the Movie Marathoners podcast, quite a bit shorter than we normally do, but we're we're doing our best. I definitely hope to come up with a more definitive plan for what's going on with the podcast very soon. And again, if you have any ideas for potential guests, or if you yourself want to be on the podcast, just let me know. And again, you don't have to worry about experience level or anything like that. It's really low-key, and it should just be a lot of fun to talk about movies. The intro music for this episode is a piece called Work by Kevin McLeod, and you can find more of his work at incompetech.com. And if you'd like to keep up with this podcast and find out when we release new episodes, you can follow us on Twitter at MovieMaraPod or on Facebook at facebook.com slash movie And again, that's movie M-A-R-A pod. And you can always reach out to us at our email, moviemarathonerspod at gmail.com. Someday somebody will. (laughs) You can find more episodes of this podcast on podbean at moviemarathoners.podbean.com. And we are also on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and Spotify. So please subscribe or write a review if you like what we're doing on any of those sites. And any feedback you have, as always, to help improve the, the podcast is appreciated. So, thank you all for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Bye. Hello, everyone. My name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, Next Best Picture.